before we read, let's uh, go to the Lord and pray. Father God, this morning, we want to see you glorified. Lord, as we just sang, glorify your name in all the earth. That's our prayer this morning, Father, is that you would glorify your name in all the earth. Lord, as a church, we come before you, Father. Um, and we have many needs. Lord, I know of many physical needs um, among this fellowship, Father. I pray, Lord, that you would meet those needs according to your will. And then as a result, Father, you would be glorified. And Lord, as a fellowship, we also, Father, have spiritual needs, which far outweigh, Father, the, the physical need. And so, God, I pray that, again, Lord, you would meet those needs according to your will and for your glory. This morning, Father, specifically, Lord, we need to hear from you. And so I ask, Lord, that you would speak to us today through your word. You would change us, Father, not just for our good, but again, Lord, for your glory. We love you and we praise you. And Father, we commit this time to you. In Christ's name, we ask these things. Amen. James, chapter 1, verse 19. We're going to begin a new, I guess a new, we'll call it a three-part sermon series. I, for some reason, everything turns into be multiple parts. I don't think I can just pick one section of verses and just be one separate sermon because there's so much there. And so I couldn't preach, I don't believe, uh, accurately or effectively in one day from James 1, 19 all the way through 27. So we're going to break that down and do a three-part uh, series. So James 1, 19 through 27. Today will be the beginning of this three-part series, okay? And I'm going to give you just a, a brief outline, and then we'll read that entire section. The first um, is this. Now, the first point, I guess, is this. It's receive the word, or receive. Everyone write that. And that's James 1, 19 through 21. Receive. James 1, 22 through 25 is respond. Respond to the word. The third point is Reflect, reflect the word. James 1, again, 26 through 27. So we have receive, respond, and reflect. And if I were to title this, which is always subject to change, I would call it simply this, live the word. So this passage here, 19 through 27, live the word, receive, respond, and reflect. I'll start 19 and read through 27. It says, this you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, 
this man will be blessed in what he does. Now, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. In verse 19, James begins, he says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, I imagine that most everyone in here has heard that verse quoted at one point or another, right? Probably yourself, maybe quoted that verse to someone else. But I also imagine that those of you who have either heard it or have quoted it have probably either heard it or quoted out of context. Thinking maybe in the context of your spouse, you're discussing what color you should paint the living room or something seemingly trivial, you know, whose turn it is to take out the garbage or whatever. And your spouse doesn't see things your way. Maybe maybe he or she's not listening, right? Not allowing you to talk, getting angry. And so you think, oh, this is it. Right, right, right. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I mean, it sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, it fits kind of, doesn't it, within that framework, right? But this is not what James is addressing here. Not that context. Now, there are other scripture verses that would absolutely apply in that situation, but not what James is talking about here, okay? So the context of of this command, and these are commands. This is imperative what James is saying, okay? The context of this passage is concerning debate, argument, dialogue, instruction, whatever word you want to use, over theological and doctrinal issues, as well as the application of those issues. So that's what James is addressing when he says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, or slow to anger. Right? He's saying that in the context of, of debate over doctrinal or theological issues, or instruction, or again, argument, or whatever you know term you want to use concerning that. That's what James is addressing. He says, you must be, but everyone must be quick to hear. But everyone. Now, now that's all of us, right? He's talking to believers here, right? We know that this letter was written to believers, not just them, but also us. But everyone, that includes us, but everyone must be quick to hear. Quick to hear, not just audible sounds like, I heard a noise. You're laying in bed in the middle of the night and your spouse, did you hear that? I heard a noise. What was it? I don't know. I just heard something. He's not just talking about hearing noise, right? No, of course he's not. He's talking about listening. Be quick to listen. And listening doesn't just involve your ears, does it? No, it also involves what? It involves our minds, thinking. Think about, think about what you're hearing. That's what James is saying. You're in this debate, this discourse concerning some doctrine, right? the implication of some doctrine or teaching. It says, think about what you're hearing. Regardless of which side of the, the debate you're on, maybe you're right. I'm sure both parties think they're right. Maybe you know you're right. right. Regardless, James gives this command. It says, 
think. Think about what you're hearing. Think about what the other person is saying. Now, part of thinking about that is what? Discerning, right? We just finished a couple of weeks back our Wednesday night study over discernment. So listen, think, and discern. Acts 17, 11. Acts 17, 11 says, Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so, right? Talking about the Bereans, right? Examining the scriptures daily, examining the teachings of what the apostles, right? Against what? God's word, right? So as we are commanded to do this, as we are commanded to be quick to hear, when we find ourselves in these type of environments, situations, discourses, whatever you want to say, we are to examine what is being said and what is being taught against Scripture. And that's a part of this thinking process that James is commanding us to. Even if you know you're right, even if you love these doctrines and you know these doctrines well, and you can articulate these doctrines accurately, still necessary to what continue to examine them what against God's word or with God's word Proverbs 8:13 Sorry 18:13 Proverbs 18:13 James says or not James sorry it says he who gives an answer before he hears, what does it say? It's a folly and a shame to him. What? Think before you speak. So the first command in this series is to think before you speak. He continues. He says, but everyone must be quick to hear. Think before what? You speak. Slow to speak. So be quick to hear and be slow to speak. Turn over, if you're still in Proverbs, turn over to Ecclesiastes, if you would. Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 5-2. It says, do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Here's the thing. If you're going to speak for God, this is what James is saying here, being slow to speak. If you're going to speak for God, now he's not talking about new revelation, like I was in the shower this morning. God gave me a word for you. Of course, we would call that rubbish, right? God's word is, is here. So if you're going to speak for God from here, right? Thus says the Lord here in the Bible, okay? If you're going to speak about God, right? 
authoritatively, which it should be if, if you're going to speak about God. It should be spoken authoritatively, right, with this as our authority, okay? If you're going to expound upon some type of doctrine or some theology or the implication or applications of that theology, you better make sure that what you're about to say is correct. It's right. It's true. This is what James is saying. Be slow to speak. Think before you speak. Speak carefully. Make sure that what you're about to say is right, is accurate. Again, I think it's easy to think that these rules, right? We'll call them rules. I mean, they're commands, right? But but we'll use the term rules. It's easy to think that these rules don't apply to us if we're correct. You know, well, I know I'm right. I know I've got this doctrine down. I know I'm right on this issue. So I don't need to listen to what his or her position is because I know I'm the right one. So I'll just get my position out there. And then and I'm just going to say it. And I think we find ourselves in that position. This, this is what James was encountering with the Jewish mentality in the first century church. Right? Kind of this pride, kind of this arrogance that, that you know, we are who we are and we speak for God and this is just what it is and this is the way it is and we're going to get it out there. We struggle with those same, same issues you know, here today, us. Right? Sin issues. James says, again, speak before you think and these rules apply to you even if you're right. Even if you're the teacher right? These rules apply. I think this is important why James says at the beginning of verse 19, he says what? But everyone, right? But everyone. Believers, Christians, if you are a believer, be quick to hear, be slow to speak. See, even when you're right, you can be wrong. Even when you're right, you can be wrong. That is, if you speak the truth inappropriately. If you speak the truth in the wrong way. Turn with me uh, to Ephesians 4, if you would. Paul gives us some direction as, as how we are to speak the truth. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. He says, and he gave some as apostles and, and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers, or pastors, teachers, um, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, as we're maturing here, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So when we speak the truth as believers, we're to what? We're supposed to speak the truth in love. How many times, because I'm guilty, I know this, that maybe I'm discussing something with someone and what I'm telling them is true. And I, I just tell them, I lay it out and then I walk away and I think to myself, you know, I really wasn't loving how I said that. Probably, probably could have said that differently. 
Probably should have said that different. What I said was true, yes. How I said it was not right. Or maybe you heard me say it and you walked away thinking, well, if that would have been me, I probably would have said that a little bit differently. Maybe I would have handled that with a little more love and grace and compassion, right? Okay, so we can speak truth, but we can do it incorrectly or in a wrong manner. And that's why this applies to us, even if we think we're right or even if we know we're right in the, in the, the discourse of debate, right, over doctrine, theology, or whatever it might be in the context of this, right? still applies to us. Be slow to speak. If you're going to speak for God, be slow to speak. Be slow to speak and to what? Slow to, he says, anger. Now, not only is this a command, because it is, right? All, all three of these are commands, right? Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. They're commands, but this one, and this one especially, and slow to anger, it's a warning. Be very very cautious. Now notice what James doesn't say. He doesn't say, don't get angry. Does he? He doesn't say, don't get angry. Be quick to hear, slow to speak. Do not get angry. No, he says, and slow to anger. So here's the question. Is anger a sin? Yes? No? Maybe depends. I think that's the right answer, right? Maybe. Is anger a sin? It can be. Right? Can anger not be a sin? Can be. Ephesians 4.26. 4.26, Paul says. Be angry. He says, be angry. And yet do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. So is it possible, according to Paul here in Ephesians, to be angry and not sin? It is. So let's see what Paul says about this in Colossians. If you would turn over to Colossians chapter 3. 5 through 8. And this is Paul. So we just read where Paul said what? Be angry and do not sin. So it's possible to be angry and not sin. But here in Colossians, Paul says, <clears throat> starting in verse 5, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, Malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Put them all aside. Be done with it. Right? Anger, anger. So Paul here says, put away anger. Put it aside. Be done with it. And yet in Ephesians, he said, be angry. Do not sin. So is Paul contradicting himself here? Here he says, you can be angry and don't sin. But over here, he treats anger as sin in Colossians and says, just be done with it, completely be done with it. See, there is a such thing as a righteous anger, right? I think we all are probably aware of that. Right? There is a such thing as a righteous anger. That's what Paul's addressing in Ephesians 4.26, right? Be angry and do not sin. He's talking about a righteous anger. And then there's an unrighteous anger. That is sin. 
That's what he's addressing in Colossians. So, is anger a sin? It depends. Depends on what? Well, is it a righteous anger? Or is it an unrighteous anger? This in part is why James is giving us this warning here, this caution, right? Be slow to anger. Do you hate sin? Do you hate sin? Does it make you angry? It should make you angry. Right? Romans 12, 9, we're not going to turn there, but Paul says, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. What is evil? Sin is evil. Hate sin, Paul says here in Romans 12, 9. Hate sin, cling to what is good. God is good, cling to God, hate sin. Sin should make you angry. Your sin should make you angry. The sin of others should make you angry because it is an affront to God. Christ died for that sin. And as believers, especially, when we continue to sin, when we willingly sin, there's those sins of omission, sins of commission, but especially the sins of commission, it's as if we put Christ back on the cross and crucify him over and over and over again. And this should make you angry. But what are you angry at? Are you angry at the sin? Or when we're talking about somebody else, are you angry at the person? Let's consider, if you would, for a minute, the doctrines of grace. Right? I believe that these are doctrines that most of us in here just, just, just love. Okay, We love the doctrines of grace. We love to tell others about how God opened our eyes and brought us to these wonderful doctrines that are, are not only central to, to Christianity, but, but are in and of themselves the gospel, right? I mean, we absolutely love these doctrines. And I know many of us in here right, have in some form or some fashion right, been in disagreement, been in debate, argument, whatever you want to call it, with other believers, right, who don't feel the same way that we feel about these doctrines. Some professed to be believers would, would call these doctrines doctrines of demons. They would say, well, these aren't biblical doctrines. No, no God would do this or believe this or have this or do that, right? Okay. Now, again, these are professing believers, and so we're going to treat them as such because they are professing believers. But I know that many of us have had conversations about these doctrines with people who we truly believe are believers, and yet they don't, right? They don't hold to these doctrines as we hold these doctrines, right? And as we've entered into these, these situations, right, and as you've been attacked or seemingly attacked because of your position, has it made you, has it made you angry? See, it should make you angry, but you should be angry at what? The sin. You should be angry that there's a pastor in this town who stands up and denies these doctrines and teaches those entrusted in his care that these doctrines are false. You should be angry at the sin of denying the truth, of the blasphemy essentially involved in that. That should anger you. You should be angry that God's children aren't being fed the truth but are being fed lies that are being carried away by this doctrine or that doctrine, which are false doctrines. Okay? That should anger you. 
but, and that's a righteous anger. But if you find yourself in this position or have, or will again, and we will, folks, we will be there again, maybe not concerning these doctrines, but concerning other doctrines, other teachings, theology, we will find ourselves there. But if you, if you view their position as a personal attack on you, or you make it personal, how dare they challenge what I know to be true? How dare they challenge my beliefs? They're not challenging you. They might be making it personal. They might be attacking you. But listen, they're not. They're attacking truth. They're attacking the word of God. They're attacking God. And your anger should be at the sin and not at the sinner. That's not our position to take. That's not for us, right? So that's the difference between a righteous anger being angry at the sin and what it's cost and what it's doing and being angry at the sinner. The man in town who denies these doctrines, I love him dearly. I do. I really do. And I pray for him. I have compassion for him. But I hate the sin. I hate what he's saying because it's not true. It's opposed to God. And I hate what he's saying because there are believers who are listening to him, right, that aren't being discerning and are being fed lies. That's where my anger lies. Okay? The difference between righteous anger, which is not sin, and unrighteous anger, which is sin. But there's a fine line, isn't there? I mean, I, at times can have a short fuse and be prone to getting spooled up real fast. Okay. Argument might start. Discussion might start. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I know I'm right. Maybe I can, can defend my position that I'm right. So I start off. Okay. Then maybe buttons get pushed, right? And in an instant, I go from zero to 60, right? And I'm mad and I'm angry and I'm fuming and I'm sinning. Could there have been a righteous anger come from that conversation? Yeah, I'm upset because, because of the sin involved in that position and what it's doing, right? But there's a fine line, right? At least for me, there's a fine line between righteous anger and unrighteous anger because I can start off on the right path, which could lead to having a righteous anger or righteous indignation over something. Then I could wind up on the wrong path. Abortion would be a great issue, right? I mean, we should be angry at the murder of innocent babies. Should make us fuming mad. But it's real easy for many to go from a righteous anger on that to an unrighteous anger that results in sin. Okay, so there's a real fine line there. And that's why James is saying, be slow to anger. Because he knows it doesn't take much to cross that line into sin. How appropriate for James to be giving these commands. And really this section here, I mean, it's, it's admonishment, right? You understand admonishment, right? I mean, he is he's correcting. He's rebuking, okay? But it's also encouragement. Because right? no doubt James would have seen this going on in, in the lives of believers where these debates were being entered into, these arguments, instruction, again, whatever, what will you, right, that were being handled incorrectly, unbiblically, right? Admonishment. 
And then there were those where maybe they haven't found themselves in that situation yet. So they weren't being admonished by this, but they were being encouraged or being encouraged to, to follow this, these principles. But how appropriate, though, it was for James to be giving these commands, right? It was obviously necessary for the church, right? The, the first century church, okay? It's obviously necessary for us. That's why, right, we have it today. But I think James was also speaking from personal application, okay? That he has seen debate and argument and dissension among believers. Acts chapter 15, you don't have to turn there because I'm not going to read it, okay? But we're just going to think real quick on Acts chapter 15. Begins with what Paul um, and um, Barnabas, their return from the first missionary journey, right? They wind up in Antioch, which is their hometown, home church, right? And some men come down, some Judaizers, right? And they're stirring up trouble, saying that, you know, right? Faith, it's not alone, you actually have to what be circumcised, follow this part of the Mosaic law to be saved. The first part of Acts chapter 15, it says that there was great debate and dissension among Paul and Barnabas and these men, professing believers. I assume that they either were or many of them might have been or some of them might have been true believers, okay, um, had this dissension and this debate over what? Theological and doctrinal issues and the application of those issues. Right? Well, James obviously was involved because what did they do? Paul and Barnabas, even as an apostle with authority, what did Paul do? Paul deferred some of that to the church in Jerusalem. And they, they convened, if you will, they call, we call the Jerusalem Council, of which James, right, who was he? He was the presiding member, right, the prominent pastor of the church in Jerusalem and the presiding member over this council. And so Paul and Barnabas and these men brought their disagreement over this doctrine, right? Which the, the Judaizers' doctrine was a false doctrine. You don't have to be circumcised or follow any aspect of the Mosaic law to be saved. But they, they brought this to that council, brought it before them. And it says in Acts chapter 15, <laughs> they debated and they argued. And I imagine at times it was heated, okay? Now, did anyone sin in that? It doesn't address that, okay? It doesn't address in, in Acts that it was handled completely and, and totally appropriate from both sides of the equation. Maybe it was. Maybe it wasn't. My guess is it probably wasn't, at least by some members. And I'm not saying if it was the wrong ones or the right ones or whichever side, okay? But James saw these principles being played out before them in the Jerusalem Council and saw the necessity for admonishment in the church Right? That when you find yourself in these situations, to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. He saw them played out. I think also James would have been aware, and this is towards the end of Acts 15, he would have been aware of the problem, we call it a problem, but the situation that arose between Paul and Mark. Now, if you recall, and we know this from the latter part of 15, that, that at some point on the first missionary journey, right, there was, there was Paul and Barnabas, and at some point Mark was there, and Mark did what? Mark deserted Paul and Barnabas. Okay, he left them. Okay? And we know this from the latter part of Ch uh, uh, Acts 15, because they're fixing to head out on their second missionary journey, and you've got Paul, and you've got um, Silas, and you have uh, Barnabas, and you have Mark. Barnabas wants to bring Mark along on the second missionary journey. Okay, 
Paul says no, right? Now, saying yes or saying no in of itself wasn't a doctrine, but I believe it was Paul's doctrine, which was biblical doctrine, and Paul's theology, which was biblical, that was behind Paul saying, no, Mark, you cannot come. Maybe, maybe Paul knew that Mark wasn't mature enough spiritually to go on this missionary journey. And so they argued, and there was dissension, and they split. Barnabas and Mark left and went to Cyprus. Paul and Silas left and went their direction. No doubt James would have been aware of this. And I believe in this situation, I believe Mark was wrong. And if I had to assume, and I'm going to assume here, Mark probably, Barnabas probably wasn't quick to listen or quick to hear, right? Slow to speak and slow to become angry, right? James would have been aware of all this as his position as, as the uh, lead pastor, if you will, over Jerusalem. So when James gives these commands, right? They are, again, commands, right? He's speaking from experience. And the Jerusalem council, and I believe the, 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 the falling out, if you will, between Paul and Mark serve as examples for us that we can reflect on concerning these issues. Now, I could have told you a story in my life where these issues should have been employed or will employed, or maybe in this church where we had discussion or disagreement or whatever, but I didn't want to go there today and make it too personal and call anyone out or call me out or set me out, okay? But here was two biblical examples we could look at where those principles were either employed and or should have been employed. So in verse 19, we see this problem unfold or this problem that James addresses. And the problem isn't this, okay? He is addressing a problem here, okay? But the problem isn't that when believers are discussing, debating, whatever, the problem isn't that they're not listening, that they're speaking without thinking, and that they're getting angry. That's not the problem. I mean, he says, yes, right? He says, listen. He says, think before you speak. And he says, be careful when you're angry, right? But the problem ultimately wasn't that people weren't doing that. It's just manifestations of the problem. Now, this, this, these commands, right, that James gives us, absolutely applicable and absolutely practical for us. If as believers... We're going to discuss doctrine, theology with other believers, and we're going to disagree. These are absolute principles that we can follow. We need to be mindful of, be aware of, that we do listen. We're careful when we speak. We're careful when it comes to getting angry, slow to anger. Right? But again, being sinfully angry, speaking without thinking, not listening, those are just manifestations, again, indicative of a greater problem. And it's this greater problem ultimately that James is addressing in this passage. And we find this in verse 20. Verse 20, James says, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. He's not talking about positional righteousness. He's not saying if you're angry positionally, you're unrighteous before God. 
right? We know that James is addressing who? Believers, right? He's addressing believers. He's addressing people who are already positionally righteous before God. If you are a believer here right now, you are what? Positionally righteous before God. When God looks upon you, he sees righteousness, doesn't he? Yes. But does he see your righteousness? No. Well, then whose righteousness does he see? Christ's righteousness, right? So positionally, if you are a believer, you are righteous in Christ before God. This is who James is addressing. Believers who are positionally righteous in Christ before God. But he says, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Well, what does he mean then if he's not talking about positional righteousness before God? Here's what James is saying. The anger of man, and he's talking about this unrighteous anger, okay? This unrighteous anger of man, it's sin. Simply what he's saying. Before God, it is sin. It is not righteous behavior. It is not right behavior. It is sin. So this problem, right, that James is dealing with, this problem that's manifesting itself in these debates concerning doctrine and theology, this problem is sin. That's what James is addressing here. He's addressing sin. Again, there's great principles that we can pull from that, right? That when we enter these conversations, right, that we need to be mindful of this, right? But the bigger problem is sin. And so that's what James is addressing here. He's addressing a sin issue. In verse 21, he gives us the principle. So we've got the problem in 19 and 20, right? Ultimately sin, right? A very specific thing that was happening, right? He gives instruction concerning, but the underlying problem is sin. And then in verse 21, he gives us, I'm going to call it the principle, right? The solution for dealing with the problem. Because see, if the problem was just simply that people weren't listening and that they were speaking without thinking and they were getting angry or sinfully angry, well, James would have just left it at 19. I mean, if that was ultimately the problem, well, you're not listening, so listen. Problem solved. He would have left it there. Or if the problem was you're speaking without thinking, right? Not being cautious and careful when you speak. Be cautious and careful. Problem solved. And if the problem was we were just getting angry too fast, he would have said, slow down, problem solved. But he doesn't. And again, he doesn't because the problem is deeper than that because it was a sin issue. So in verse 21, he starts with the solution. He says, therefore, I'm about to give you the solution here. And that's kind of what the therefore is there for. Listen up. Here's the solution. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness, And all that remains of wickedness in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. Putting aside, he says, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. To put aside means to be done with. Your version might say put off, cast off, put away, means to be done with, completely done with, no more, gone, it's over. Kids are arguing, it's done, son, it's done, it's over, no more, no more, right? I mean, you're telling them, no, no more, don't want to hear any more, it's done, forget about it, it's over, right? I mean, that's what he's saying. Be done with it, no more. Be done with what? Well, he says it, filthiness and all that remains 
of wickedness. Sin. Again, we said he's addressing what? He's addressing a sin issue, right? He says, be done with it. This sin, which is probably, what, pride in part, that's causing you not to listen, to speak without thinking, the anger that's resulting, be done with it. Be done with your sin. Be done with that sin. So what we have here is we have a put-off, put-on principle. Put-off, in this case, he says filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. Put-off this sin, is what he says. And then he goes on to say, put-on or receive, or in humility, receive the word implanted. Uh, Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We see uh, uh, the put-on, put-off principle at play here. And it's really, these these put-on, put-off principles are really practical principles. I'm going to call them practical principles of spiritual growth, okay? Well, let's look at uh, uh, 422 through 24, Ephesians. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. You put off the old self. Put off the old self. which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And, here you go, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. So you're putting off one thing. And to put off one thing, you have to put off, or put on, I'm sorry, put on another Now, we're not going to turn there, but Matthew chapter 6, this is some homework for you. Matthew chapter 6, right? Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking here, right? Now, he doesn't use the words put on, put off, but for the first probably 75%, right? The last probably paragraph of Matthew 6 really doesn't fit in this. But for that first part, Jesus gives several um, put on, put off principles where he says, don't be like the hypocrites that do this, right? Put that off. Instead, do this, right? Put on. So you've got these put-off principles, put-on principles, which again are, are principles or practical principles, I'll say, of spiritual growth. And that's what James is saying here in this case. Put off this sin. Put off this sin that is causing you to, to get angry sinfully. Put off this sin that, that, that is causing you not to listen. Put off this sin that is causing you just to speak without thinking. Put it off. Be done with it. No more. And put on this. Now I'm putting off what you know. I'm sorry. And putting off. And putting off. This idea of putting off. Being done with. You know what James is ultimately talking about here. What does that sound like? Be done with it. No more. Cast it aside. He's talking about repentance, isn't he? Isn't that what he's saying? Put off this sin. Put off this sin. Repent from this sin. What is repentance? It's not just saying sorry, right? I'm sorry. I repented. It's great. Sorry I did that. Saying sorry 
It's not repentance. Repentance means change of course, doesn't it? Change of direction. And when you change courses, what do you do? You turn to what? You turn to a new course. This was my old course. This was my new course. Sometimes in flying, you're headed in one direction. And you find out that, wait a minute, this is a bad course. If I continue on this course, it will put me in a position of destruction. I don't desire that. So what do we do? We change courses to a new course and leave that course completely behind. Repentance. Change of course. But when you change courses, you leave the old, you turn to the new. You turn from one thing and turn to another. Mark 1.15, the second part, says simply, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. So what must a man do to be made right with God? Someone might ask you that someday. Hopefully they already have and you've answered it. What must I do to be made right with God? Repent and belief. The thing is, is you, you can't separate repentance and belief. Because you repent, right? We said it's what? Turning, right? Courses, changing, direction, right? You repent from sin. You turn from sin. And as you turn from sin, you have to turn to something else, right? You turn in belief to Christ. So you repent and believe. For the believer, is repentance a one-time event? I repented. I'm good. Done. Now I can just go live my life however I want to live, right? No, may it never be, Paul says, right? No, repentance is not a one-time event. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, 12 and 13. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit, that is, if you live by the Spirit, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, this is interesting. Putting to death. If by the Spirit you are putting to death. Putting to death. This is like an ongoing thing, right? He didn't say, but if by the Spirit you have put to death the deeds of the body, you have life. No, no, no. He says, if you are putting, right? This is an ongoing process. He's talking about repentance. So for the believer, repentance is an ongoing process, must be an ongoing process. Not that I repented, but I am a repenter. I love one of Paul Washer's sermons, which most of you may or may not heard. He talks about and he asks the question, how do you know that you believe? People say, I'm a Christian, right? And, and we all know those people. We know a lot of people who, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church on Sunday. I'm a Christian because I said a prayer once, right? I mean, I believe. Oh, yeah, I repented, you know, when I was a kid. Paul Washer says, how do you know that you believe? Not that you repented once, right? But that you are what? 
continuing to repent. So a mark of a true believer is what? A repentant lifestyle. And we see a continuance of repentance in our lives, my life, your life, okay? So we know that repentance wasn't a, long, a one-time event, right? It's ongoing in the life of a believer. And that's what James is addressing here, right? He says to, to put off all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. Repent, repent from it, turn from it. And the put on is this. And in humility, which is great. I like how he adds that. And in humility, because the brother or the sister who's not listening, right? Who's not slow to speak, not slow to anger, is what? It's not being humble. It's being prideful. So put off the sin of pride in part. And in humility, he says, receive the word put on. Receive the word implanted. Now the word that James uses for implanted here has the meaning of planting seed on the ground. So the word has been implanted. If you're a believer, the word has been implanted in you like a seed. It's been implanted in you like a seed and has taken root and resides in you. And this word that has been implanted is what? It's the gospel, right? It's, it's the truth, right? It's the, the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 33. The new covenant that God promises will be what? Will be written on our hearts. This is, this is the word, right? If you are a believer, it has been implanted in you. It's there. James says, receive it. So how do you receive what you've already been given. What does he, what does he mean? I don't, I don't understand. Here's what he means. He's saying this. He's saying, put off this, right? Put off this sin over here and let the word implanted in you direct your life. Put off the sin. Follow Christ. That's what James is saying. Putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and in humility, it says, receive the word implanted in you, which is able to save your souls. James is not saying that salvation comes from following any put off, put on principle. Okay? It's not come from some work. Well, if you're a believer and you don't put off the sin, I mean, I know you're a believer now, but if you don't do this, you're going to lose your salvation because it says right here that, that if you do this, it'll save your soul. But if you don't do this, obviously, you're going to lose your soul. It's not what James is addressing here. Okay. He's not talking about positional sanctification. We said before, right, we're righteous before God. Right? When God looks at us, what does he see if you're a believer? He sees the righteousness of his son. So positionally, in Christ, we are right before God. Positionally, we have been, positionally as believers, we have been sanctified. But we know what? We know that sanctification, what? Is an ongoing process. 
You have been, as a believer, positionally sanctified. And as a believer, you are or should be sanctified. Ongoing process. So there's positional sanctification. There's progressive sanctification, right? And then there's ultimate, I guess you want to call it, sanctification, which will result in the glorification of our bodies, right? James is addressing here positional sanctification. That's what he's talking about. When he says, which is able to save your souls. He's saying that if we put off sin, we put on the word, we put on Christ, right? We let it direct our lives. And our lives will be spared heartache resulting from our sin. When I sin, me, Nate, when I sin, my relationship with Christ is affected. It is. My spiritual life is brought down. But yet, sparing myself from that sin, not really sparing myself from that sin, but repenting from that sin, or being kept, if you will, I guess, from that sin, right? Then that heartache associated with that sin, that spiritual turmoil, if you will, with that sin is what, or can be what? It can be avoided. That's what James means. That's what he's talking about when he says, which is able to save your souls. He's talking about positional sanctification. Sorry, not positional. He's talking about progressive sanctification, right? He's talking about the process by which we, what? We die to self, the process by which, what? The works of the flesh are replaced with the works of the spirit and we become more and more like Christ. That's what he means by saving our souls. Saving our souls from the trials and tribulations of our sin as we commit those sins and the consequences of those committed sins. Saving ourselves from that, not positionally before God. Let's pray. Father God, teach us, show us, enable us, Lord, to repent, to be repenters, to receive the word as James commands. Father, to put off sin Lord, and to put on the word, to be directed by your word, to be controlled Father, by you. Lord, we need you to do that. God, when you saved us, for those you have saved, Father, it's because you granted repentance. And because you granted faith. And Lord, even now as believers, Father, we pray, we ask, we beg of you, Lord, to continue to grant us repentance. And we know that we, you will. We know that you're faithful in that, Father. And so we praise you for that. And we thank you for that. Father, we desire, I, Lord, desire to see you glorified in my life. Father, I see, I desire, Lord, to see you glorified through the lives of the believers in this church. And I pray that you would do that, God, as you convict us of our sin, as you grant us 
repentance, Father, from that sin. And as you restore us, Father, from those sins. Father, not only do I desire, Lord, to see you glorified as you grant believers continued repentance, Father, and you continue to conform us, Lord, to the image of Christ. Lord, I also desire, Lord, to see you glorified as you save lost sinners. And so, God, I pray that you would do that, Father. I pray for the unbelievers in this, in this place, in this church, in this building, with this church, Father, our children, our young children, who we know have yet to repent and believe God. I pray for their salvation, Lord. I pray, God, that, that in your time, which is perfect, we know that it is and we trust that it is, God, I pray that you would grant them repentance and faith, and that you would save them, Lord, for your glory first, for their good. Lord, for, for individuals that will come to this church in the future, Lord, next week, next month, next year, 10 years, Father, but unbelievers that will come here and that will hear the gospel proclaimed, Father, I pray for their salvation as well, Lord. Again, Lord, that you would grant, because only you can grant it, Father, that you would grant repentance, that you would grant faith, Lord, and that you would save them, because only you can do that, Father. And then again, Lord, you would do it for your glory, for their good. Father, we love you. We thank you and we praise you, Lord. Again, you alone are worthy of all praise. Father, all glory, all, all honor. But I pray that as we, as we leave today, God, that we would continue to contemplate what it means to put on and to put off, to, to, to repent what it means to be repenters, even as believers, what it means to live in a repentant lifestyle, God. I pray that you would keep that on our hearts, on our minds, Father, that we would contemplate that and that you would use that contemplation, Father, to convict us of maybe unrepentant sin in our lives. Lord, I ask these things in Christ's name for his sake. Amen.